In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk. homeless since 2018 with my partner, three kids. Uh, what couldn't do finally difficult then stuck in one room looking at four walls every day with the three kids. And how do you explain to your children when you're coming along here to the GPO this evening for food? What do you say? Well, they, they, they ask, they personally ask, can we go to the GPO for food? Do you know what I mean? And I find it hard, like, do you know what I mean? We buy food weekly, there's food there for them to cook. They just like coming down to the soup run. I'm an old age pensioner. Well, I forget dinner. I was down to nine stone eight before I came down here. Because you couldn't afford to eat? I can't no money, yeah. But then there's something from depression. I'm a single mother in a homeless accommodation. Everything is on me, on me, on me, on me. How important are the soup runs for you every day? Very important because it's either going to cost us 20 euro a day or we can come here and get our bit to eat, you know what I mean? Like, and it's great. So you're out of homelessness, but you still use the soup run service? Yes, oh yes. When you're basically unemployed, I do find ends hard to meet. Yeah, I've, I've attempted that. And I, I, I use the food runs here, and they're very good and all. The people are great, you know what I mean? If you need anything, they look after you well, you know. The food runs on the street don't get enough credit for what they do, you understand? This time of evening, you can see the numbers that are here now, you know what I mean? It's kind of a social thing as well, because you, you wouldn't really be connecting any other way, if you know what I mean. What age are you? I am 12. And are you in school? Yes. See, Papa, see, when you come here with your family? Yes, we want to stay with my dad. For her, for my family. And me and my mom, we are staying in the hostel. Is it hard to do your homework in that yes. hostel? Yes. My, my mom, she just don't know how to do. And what would you like to happen when you get older? Teacher. You'd like to be a teacher? Yeah. Josh Crosby reporting. Hello and a very good morning to you. Okay, a quick question for you. What would you do for a quality haircut or a nice cool point? Well, take a listen to this. We have a well-established business there. My grandfather had it in the 70s. It changed hands through generations. I have it there now. It would be a quite big bar and we've heavily invested in... uh, beer garden because we can think see that that's the way forward at the minute and therefore that is why we're lucky enough to be able to open on the 30th because we have took the steps to be ready oh absolutely anything that's getting us back in business is positive and getting out and about again back in a bit of normality and yes of course getting to trade again is one of the um one of the main reasons that we want to get going and see all our customers again and get back into the swing of things We've been on and off for March and it's very hard to get open and established again, get your customers back, back into a routine and then the rug pull from under you and back having to re-establish, go again. So I would like to think this will be the last lockdown that we'll ever see because to do this again, possibly third or fourth time, would be heartbreaking. What are you, a couple of miles from the border? That's it. We're only, literally, we're off the motorway two, three miles off the motorway there at Newry, just up into the village of Camla, very close to the border, very close. Bar owners in the Republic are going to be envious of the hospitality sector up here in Northern Ireland. There's going to be no doubt there's going to be customers coming across the border to come to your pub. Yes, they are going to come down, and a lot of my customers work in the south, and we have a lot of cross-border trade. Um, I'd say it's very hard for the publicans today in the south to see that we have the steps in place to be open, but they are lagging behind it would be it'd be heartbreaking for them. And yes, if people do come down, well, we have to deal with that when it comes. I'm sure it will come. 
Would you turn them away? I wouldn't want to turn them away. I wouldn't want to turn anybody away. That's business. Hmm, interesting. There'll be no checking for your vaccination or anything if you're from the Republic or even the reg of your car. That's business. So that's Donald Boyle who owns Tolls Pub and Camilla. Now, Barry, uh, I presume these dates for the reopening of the Northern Ireland economy have been welcomed across the board. Yeah, for the most part they have, Pat. For example, Belfast Chamber have said, given the quick rollout of the vaccination programme and the drop in cases in Northern Ireland and these dates for reopening are justified, but hospitality, Ulster, for example, they say they do reopen or they do welcome a reopening date. But at the same time, they say they'd still have liked to see the reopening to be more in line with the rest of the UK's reopening, where hubs and restaurants have already opened for outdoor dining. And I found that in the North yesterday, Pat, that, you know, a lot of people in Northern Ireland, they're watching BBC news. They're not watching the news down here. So they're looking at London and the rest of the UK. And a lot of people in the North are saying, you know, why are we not opening as quick as them? So they're not really looking across the border. And Pat, I got a mixed reaction from people on the streets of Newry yesterday. Some people told me they believed the reopening was still too slow, while others told me they were glad the Northern Ireland executive were being cautious. Oh, no doubt about it. You know, people just can't can't get it open quick enough. Like, when you look at the statistics now, what's staying? There's no deaths, you know, very little. So I think they have it well under control. They could ease up a wee bit quicker. So you actually think uh, the roadmap to reopening is too slow? Sure, yeah. But what do you think should open quicker then? Well, for, for a start, they could open the retail. You know, like, what? You, you go into Dunn stores there and they're selling clothes. You know, so what, what the hell's the difference? And, and a shop then in Hill Street here that's closed up that can't sell anything. I think it's, it's quite unfair. Would you have any concerns about people from the Republic crossing the border to come up here to shop? No, no, no. I wouldn't have any con- concerns with that at all. You know, I think they have it quite... I think they have it well under control there now, too. Yeah. There, was a while, there was a while there that they had and it was, it was kind of out of control. But no, they have it well, well sorted. As long as everybody keeps obeying the rules and wearing the masks and... Uh, you know, distancing for a while until... Because we're doing great here in Northern Ireland, as regards to it. So if they're opening up in England... Jeez, I've seen it in London yesterday. Millions of them on the streets, no masks, all except drinking coffee. No, I'd say we've well, done fairly well here around this area. When you see the pictures from the likes of London, do you not have any concerns that it could be the same here? Well, I, I, I don't know how they're allowed to do that in the middle of London. I mean, that's a big, massive metropolis. That's pure madness. So do you think uh, the way they're opening up, is it too slow or do you think... No, I agree really, uh, you know, being cautious, I do, because there's no point opening up and then closing down two weeks later. Everybody's fed up with that. Barry White reporting for the Pat Kenny Show. Can you remember then a period, and I assume it was a gradual process, where you started to... Uh, you were watching more and more of these videos and it started, that seemed to be reality to you and everything outside of that wasn't reality. Yeah, that's how it is. And it's how it is for so many other people that I speak to now that are still involved in it and trying to walk away from it. And it really has been amplified by the pandemic. The more time you spend on the internet, the less time you spend outside, the more extreme your opinions are going to become. Because again, the algorithms through social media companies to try and keep you on there for as long as possible are going to keep pushing more and more extreme content. And that's how I I formed my worldview based on that. I started to mistrust certain groups of people more. I really started to feel like, Uh, there was going to be some sort of civil war 
in, in, in European countries in 20 or 30 years because of this growing threat of Islamism. And, and it, everything was really heightened and, and a far more extreme version of reality. And it really took me to actually travel and go and travel the world again and start making um, documentaries about you know the migrant crisis and the refugee crisis to realize that that didn't match with the reality I was reading about online. And the people who were fleeing those countries and fleeing the Middle East were you know genuine victims of war and genuinely people that didn't want to come to the West and invade it. They were they were like absolute victims. And I know that sounds obvious now, but at the time I genuinely felt like these were fighting age, like invading young men. These were the headlines on my newsfeed. And I suppose ironically, you, you met a lot of these people in the context of making videos uh, uh, for, for some of these far right figures like Lauren Southern, who you mentioned, uh, and Tommy Robinson. Was there also because I suppose that the, the, uh, you want a headline, you want some sort of provocation. Also, to a degree in producing these videos, you used a lot of skill to kind of slightly nudge the meaning of the context of what people were seeing. Oh, absolutely. I felt genuinely through a year of consuming this content before I got involved in it, that there was going to be a massive conflict between the people that are coming to Europe and and women and gay people and, and people needed to be woken up about it. I felt like the media wasn't raising this point and we had to do that by any means necessary. And if it meant bending the truth a little bit, if it meant being, you know, using techniques to be a little bit more clickbait and a bit more shocking, that was worth it to wake people up and have people understand what we were saying and have people join our, you know, movement. And looking back, it's terrible. Like I regret making all of that stuff and, and being part of that but it really felt like we needed to do that to bring people on board and to wake people up we felt like the media weren't doing a good job of it terror attacks were sweeping europe and we we wanted to warn people about it um and and could you give us an example of what kind of things you used to do kayla um, I mean, just be selectively at it, I guess. So we would go to a protest that would be left wing and we would interview a bunch of people and selectively, you know, at the end, we would edit out the ones that were more reasonable and, and, and only keep in the kind of more crazy reactions or the more, um, you know, maybe only keep in some of the people that didn't really know why they were there and then painted the entire crowd to reflect that, uh, which is... You know, it's not great. And it was basically done to be like, well, the left don't have the answers to all of this and they don't really know why they're protesting and they don't really know what they stand for. Um, So it was kind of selectively editing um, to kind of paint a more extreme picture. And when you were traveling around Europe and and meeting refugees, uh, who were you working for at that point? And, And did you kind of express... God, actually, you know, out loud at the time, this isn't uh, what I thought it was. Yeah, very vocally. I was working for Lauren Southern at that time. I had stopped working with Tommy Robinson because he started saying that actually it's not Islam as an idea that's the problem. It's actual Muslims. And it started to become extremely racist, more than I really realized he believed in. And so just was working with Lauren. When we were on the coast of Turkey that night, we were terrified and genuinely thought that there were going to be, you know, these migrants were going to come through the bushes. We had heard that people had guns and human traffickers. And like genuinely right in front of us, the people that walked through to get onto rubber dinghies to Europe were women and children and were just completely, you know, as I described earlier, were just victims of this stuff. And I remember turning around to Lauren and being like, I hope they made it to Europe. After After three years or two years of being involved in all this stuff and after advocating that immigration is stopped immediately the borders are closed immediately and pushing propaganda against these people i genuinely hope that they made it to safety because it was terrifying for them being in turkey um and that was the last movie i ever made for the mm. right i remember how did she I, reply I, when you said that to her 
I remember she just looked out the window and stayed silent. Um, I think a lot of people that I work with knew but deep down that a lot of it was nonsense. But a lot of people are profiting from this. They're the ones making a huge amount of money from it. They're the ones that have massive livelihoods. They're the face of it. So it's much harder for them to state that they're wrong and walk away, which is really unfortunate because I know a lot of those people don't really believe the stuff that they push out anymore. Um, but it was it was sad. I remember I, I gave the footage to Lauren and I said, let's tell the stories of these refugees and then I'm going to retire and I'm not going to um, take part in this stuff anymore. What an interesting story. Writer and filmmaker Quaylen Robertson from Moncrief. Should it be up to businesses to solve period poverty, Kira? Um, no, I don't believe it should be up to businesses to solve period poverty, but I think this is a welcome move by little. My view on this is pretty straightforward. I think we are getting it wrong. There has been survey after survey that has shown that about 50% of teenage girls say that financing tampons, financing sanitary towels, all that kind what of stuff. What percentage, sorry? 50%, almost 50% uh, is, is an issue for them. And Half? I, yeah. Ah, oh, come on. I see, I think when you start quoting figures like that, to me the argument's gone. Half of people out there. Half of teenage girls aged 12 to 19. I don't believe that figure. You see, Shane, I actually think this is invisible to you because you've never been that girl. I've I've been a teenage girl. I've been the teenage girl and I don't suspect teenage girls 50%. are much, much different now that they, they're out with their pals, they've no money in their pocket, they get caught short, their period comes... Teenage girls' periods ah, that's almost... that's a different matter. No, it's not. Almost that ex- is a different no, it's, matter. You see, it's not. You just haven't thought this through. Most, oh, no. Hang on, sorry. I have thought it through and I've debated you, this with you no, before. No, hang on. You've thought it through I that just a girl with an irregular believe... cycle who could bleed at any time of the month and doesn't know her period no, is coming... you talked about economics. That's a, that's a totally and different matter. And doesn't have any money in her pocket and suddenly right. gets caught short. 50%. Every single okay. teenage girl in the world or certainly in Ireland has had to ask a friend for a tampon has had to, has no had to borrow money to pay for them. My view on, on periods is very simple. They should be available. Tampons and towels should be available in every toilet in the exact same way as toilet paper because it wouldn't be reasonable to ask you as a bloke to carry toilet paper in your pocket in case you got caught short and had to do a poo. So why are we asking half the population to do that with sanitary okay. products? My, look, my issue about period poverty is I, 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 I'm concerned it's become one of those issues that people and politicians in particular use to demonstrate progressiveness and wokeness to use that term. We were discussing that yesterday. Yeah, I think period poverty is an issue. I think food poverty is an issue. I think clothes poverty is an issue. I think rural poverty is an issue. I think absolute poverty is an issue. I think mental poverty is an issue. And my view on all types of poverty is you tackle those issues at source by the people who actually have that poverty. You do not do it by giving all products to everyone who can afford it. That's, just, that's my simple view on but it. this is I a think little it's a different waste because this is an, I, this no is an intimate hygiene matter. Yeah, absolutely. And I have no problem with them going into public toilets. mortified by it. Yeah, and I, often, I'm agreeing with you. Yeah. I have no problem with them going into public toilets and so on. I just don't think that everybody should get free everything. I don't think that tackles poverty. I think that is a cop-out and I think it's an easy thing to say and I think it, you come across as, one comes across as progressive and witted and all that. I actually think it does nothing to tackle real poverty. And that's what we should be I think this to is a specific issue around bodies. I think girls of that age, they get their periods, Shane, at 10, 11, 12. They're mortified. It I is, guess, oh, it absolutely. is stigma. I agree. And, and, I, agree. I, and I think I we don't have disagree to with that. Ever, and, and they aren't walking around flahulock with money, all the girls in the country at that age. They often are living on pocket money. And if they're caught short or out, I think... Okay. I think Let us know what you think. Yeah, should, I think it's an issue. Should, should period probably be free? 
in this country. Let us know. 53106 for 30 cent or tweet us at NT Breakfast. Shane Coleman and Kira Kelly on News Talk Breakfast. As heard on the Tom Dunn Show. In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk. Is cash dying? I think so. Obviously, it's going to be reduced hugely because of this. Um, but I, I wouldn't think it's dying. I wouldn't think it's dead in any way, really. Yet. I think we will revert back, actually, to a certain amount of cash payments, definitely. How much money do you have on you at the moment? I have just my credit card, actually. So no points, nothing? Nothing. No, not at all. Everything's on my phone. Everything? Ep- absolutely everything. Banking. Um, so you don't have any two euro coins or fivers? It's a constant struggle on public transport, to be honest. If they just moved the leap card onto the phone, I probably would never have a wallet. It's gotten rid of the need for handbags. Who needs handbags? So you don't use a handbag, you don't use coins, you don't even like using credit cards, all the phone? Everything's on the phone. Phone. Everything. My ba- Every time I touch, um, you know, touch pay, everything's on the phone. It's just so much easier. Pre-pandemic, no, you'd have to get money out. But post-pandemic, everybody, everybody accepts. Even the smallest little thing of fruit, you know, it's all on the card. Do you still use cash? No, I never do. To be honest, everything's on the phone. I'm having a chat with Calvin Morrissey from Old Mahoney's Family Butchers in the English market. The card is, is the one out the best. It's the way to go out at the moment. Seems a lot faster and it's easier as well. Like. Even though cash is king, I think it's definitely dying out a bit. My name is Pat O'Connell and I'm from the English market in Cork. It's phenomenal the change, really, Henry, in the last few years. I mean, I suppose credit cards were probably about 8% of our business going back five years ago. And at the moment, they're running at about 90%. So uh, cash is definitely on, a, on, on an outward run. And when Prince Philip and when the Queen visited, we know they don't carry cash, but... They're not the only ones that don't carry cash. None of us seem to carry cash anymore. No, and I mean, I, I used to like my daughter because Sarah was using cars for the last 10 years. And I used to say, Sarah, 
you need cash. And she said, no, you don't, Daddy, you're a dinosaur. <laughs> Is cash going to die? I don't think it will die, but I think it will be significantly replaced uh, by online and by contactless. There will always be a need, I think, for cash, and there will always be some requirement for cash. It's something I've always maintained, that the banks have a huge responsibility to really help more vulnerable customers, but older customers who may well be challenged by some of the online transition that's gone on. Now, we shouldn't assume in a kind of an arrogant way that in some way older people can't use online, can't use contacts. They can and are, and are in amazing numbers. And the numbers. pandemic has proven that. Absolutely. And one of the things that the banks did in the middle of the pandemic was to help um, vulnerable customers with third-party people to utilise some of their banking needs. If they couldn't get to a branch that remained open, they could give author authority to a third party to help them with their banking needs. But that actually wasn't taken up in the amount and in the way that we thought. And that shows that older people, of course, can use online and can use um, contactless. There's no reason why we can't be world leaders. We've seen it in some of the, the businesses like Stripe and others. Uh, I spoke to a bank recently who said to me, Brian, in, in five or six years, 60% of the people who work in banks will be coming from an engineer or engineering or computer business. Won't, they won't necessarily be coming from a provisioning business, which was traditional banking. My name is Sean Welch. Sean, you're a well-known folk singer, you're a busker. Well, <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> and I notice you've got about five euro in coins um, busking. People aren't carrying cash like they used to. Would you get like a credit card machine or something to get a bit more? No, I, I wouldn't think it would look very well, no. But you'll be surprised. Um, a lot of elderly people are still carrying cash. If I have a look inside my wallet, um, I haven't got any cash on me. I can't give you anything. Yeah, but I find a lot of, uh, uh, especially women shoppers, they all seem to have um, uh, loose, loose money in their pockets, not necessarily in a purse. I've just spent 20 quid on the shoemakers, and I have uh, five left. We just met somebody there who was begging in the street, and because we had no coins on us, uh, unfortunately she didn't get anything, which I think is a big disadvantage in the cashless society. Henry McKean reporting for the Pat Kenny Show. So for the right price, I will happily take over Phil Fogel's <laughs> Twitter account. I will increase his followers to a million, no problem, but for the right price. Uh, speaking of the money side of it, what sort of cash are we talking then? Uh, the talk at the time was that Cristiano Ronaldo on Instagram was getting $889,000 per Instagram post. Is that just one of those made-up numbers that gets thrown around in the story? Is there, is there a possibility you can earn that sort of cash? No, I think that's uh, that's one of those numbers. I mean, it, it, I'd be very sceptical about those numbers. Uh, v um, v almost certainly uh, Instagram posts would be tied up into a wider com commercial deal. Um, I, I, sometimes with, with, with influence, people who are actual sort of in, in Instagram influencers, i.e. that there is no real career outside of it in the way that Cristiano's got an actual football career, um, that they might, they would sell per post potentially, but even then... Um, you know, not uh, nowhere near those sort of numbers, obviously. I mean, Cristiano would be able to make astronomical sums from his commercial deals. And if they're smart, and clearly the people around him are very smart, um, then they would wrap his social media presence into that. Um, but I'd be, uh, I'd, I'd treat many of those kind of figures you see with a pinch of salt. Right. Uh, on 
the abuse then and when I asked earlier about clubs wanting their players on social media no. on the one hand it's a great marketing tool for the clubs to have the players out there front and centre every time somebody clicks on their phone but it feels as though not a day goes by now that we don't have another story of a footballer being racially abused no matter what happens in fact you go on to Phil Foden's account and he might have just scored the winning goal as he did last night and he can post anything and supporters of the opposition team are abusing him uh, I can't imagine clubs want their players actually like the rest of us addicted to their phone addicted to Twitter sitting there scrolling through what are quite shocking comments almost all of the time there's very little positive said to these players online uh, are clubs uh, have they got policies in place now around how they try and protect their players from that online abuse um, some of the clubs are, re- are kind of starting to do training for the academy guys with, um, you know, the kids coming through the academy and, and train them in how to protect themselves. Uh, I've done some of that training myself um, with, with professional footballers and, and help them to understand what tools are on the platform to protect yourself and to, to give yourself that. It's a very difficult uh, area, Nathan. I mean, I'm, the football clubs are currently in the Premier League Outraged with, um, rightly so, with with the abuse that that many of their players are getting. Solving it is 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 a much bigger, more complex issue. Um, there's been calls for boycotts. You'd have seen a couple of football clubs, Swansea City mm. and Birmingham City, uh, announced a week long boycott. Um, you'd have seen that Jordan Henderson threw open his channels to uh, an anti cyber bullying charity. Um, different approaches there my own personal view is that the education piece that Henderson has has gone after is a much more effective long-term strategy to combat the problem than the uh, boycott uh, which I I don't think will be particularly effective although I respect the right of anyone to do that at any point Um, I think ultimately the answer is is education or uh, of the sort of people that um, that send these disgusting messages to to footballers or to anyone else who, who's abused on social media um, especially when it's racist or sexist or, 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 or uh, any other type of hate speech that gets sent um, I think we need we need more education on, on the pain that that causes and um, uh, I, I, unfortunately I really do think it's a problem that goes beyond just football and just uh, social media but I think we are where we are now and football and social media are going to need to work together to combat the problem Some interesting social media insights there from Lewis Wiltshire from Off the Ball. Suzanne, you're in Athlone. As a person of mixed race yourself, how are you feeling after the conviction last night? I'm feeling quite contemplative. I feel there's been a line drawn in the sand and it's the beginning of something, but there's still a lot of work to be be done. There there really is a shifting in consciousness and deep-seated cultural consciousness and the way um, I guess we socialize uh, from when we're young and how we think about people that are other, because I sort of put it into this otherness that we cast people into where, uh, like I grew up in Australia and I have quite dark skin and my actual heritage is very European. It's Irish, German, Polish, but uh, I got this very healthy dose of Spanish and I would have grown up being called a nigger and, and picked on quite a lot uh, my whole life. Uh, and stabbed. I got stabbed at six years of age for being the black kid in the, in the class. And it's unbelievable. Would have, oh, yeah, I would have gone through a lot of um, extremely traumatic events growing up. And then as but I got older. Six. 
yeah, I was sick. So I still have the piece of pencil stuck in my hand uh, because I got told how black I was and just dabbed. And I didn't even think I could speak out to the teacher because I just, I just sat very quiet about it. I remember my poor father being horrified when he found out his child had been stabbed because I think I kept it hidden for quite a while. I was very ashamed of, of my skin You must skin have been colour. very frightened, Suzanne. Yeah, I, I was. And then even growing up and getting older, like I know I went and lived in the States for a while and uh, it just it was the same sort of racial profiling. It just changed. Like, instead of being Aboriginal, like cast as Aboriginal, I'd be cast as Mexican. And I, you know, I had a very, uh, I have a very lily white child and she's definitely my child. Um, but I'd get accused of being the Mexican nanny. And I say accused because that's often how I would feel yeah. because people wouldn't take the time to get to know me or being profiled at airports um, and having my, ch- my children taken off me until whoever was profiling me decided that I was not a threat. And it was always just based on the color of my skin and the consciousness that comes with this, um, and I really do believe it's to do with that colonial imperialist uh, mindset that that began probably in the 1500s and onwards. I mean, it's this whole view of the world that that others people that are not white. Do you think has there been any improvement or any positive change in Ireland in recent years? So? Yes, I like. I have to be honest with you. I feel the safest. Me, I personally, I feel the safest here. Um, than I felt living in other places I have lived in. But I still get that, that gaze of otherness where people just assume I'm from Syria or okay, nobody bothers to try and find out, well, why is your skin like that? Well, actually, it's a recessive gene. I just happened to end up looking the way I do from a, an accident of genetics. Um, but experienced from a very young age what it is to be a person of colour. Uh, so it's a really unique perspective because I've been able to really observe. So here I get called exotic a lot, which is like, you know what, I'm really just like everyone else. People breathe. It's it's okay. Do you know, I think like you. I breathe like you. I feel like you. I rear my children like you. You know, there's, you know, I, uh, yeah. I make my way through the world like you. Why should my skin colour factor into any of this? Andrea Gilligan on Lunchtime Live. In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk. And I have here beside me, Simon, my father's ledger when he came from Newry to Dunleary, and uh, I've managed to keep it down the years. It's a beautiful leather bound document and it's uh, quite a heavy book actually and you can still see where the traces of ink on the outside where the pen and ink. So I'll just open it up here and my name is Don McManus and I'm the Managing Director of McManus Jewellers Limited which was established in 1928 here in Dunleary and we're a family business of jewellers. Now as you can see uh, if we look at, at, at the dates here we'll take a random date and it's April 1929 and um, on a Monday morning uh, the 8th of April, you can see the number of items that were pawned in my dad's premises and uh, they number 727. Now those 727 pieces represented 727 people. 
and they would actually queue, my dad would tell me they would be queuing all the way down George's Street past the hospital and so on and there was a laneway beside the shop and over the doorway there was a lucky horseshoe and the three balls are very disputed as to regards what they meant but my dad used to say they were faith, hope and charity so it should be an interesting one but the amount that was lent on that Monday morning as you can see here was £391, zero shillings and one penny now that represents probably half the price of a house today in the borough of Dunleary so it was an extraordinary amount of money to be lent and the number of items that were redeemed were 85 and if you then go down to the Saturday you'll find that the opposite happened there was only 148 items pawned but 855 items redeemed now they were for the people of the of the vicinity here in Dunleary that wouldn't have had the access to the banking system at the time and indeed pawnbroking was knowing was known as the banker to the people because they wouldn't be entertained by the higher echelons of society at the time but what they had would they have wedding rings and suits and what have you and they would be pawned on a Monday to get them through the week if they were short and they would be redeemed for the religious services that would happen then on the Sunday so you can see 855 items that were redeemed on the Saturday and my dad used to tell me in the early days all the workers would work till maybe 9.30 on a Saturday evening and uh, the cook would come in and we had an old range in the base of the premises and she would cook up rashers and sausages and what have you for all the staff and even on a Christmas Eve they'd work till 9.30 at night so it was hard times and you know the wages were very low but it was an extraordinary uh, an extraordinary um, uh, system we had uh, over the years some fantastic stories that have come back to us about people that were were uh, pawning items but one of the most curious ones was a lady who lived very close here off Cross Avenue in Dunleary and one day she was walking down and she was saying God what will I find to pawn and she passed by rubbish that was thrown out from a house and part of that rubbish was an electric iron now, my father would always plug in any electrical appliance to make sure that it was functioning. But this lady was very clever and she brought it home and she put it on the range and she heated up the iron, then wrapped it up in a, uh, in a blanket and ran down to my dad. And she, it was actually her daughter told me the story and uh, my dad unwrapped it and said, Asher, Sean, look, you know, it, it's still hot. I'm only after ironing the husband's trousers. So my father, of course, said, well, there's no point in plugging it in. So lent her two shillings and sixpence. And of course, the damn thing never worked at all. What an interesting history from Town of Kings on Documentary on News Talk. Like when you talk to people about it, Dermot, and, and you, you do a lot online and people follow you on Instagram where you're, you talk about it a lot. I mean, do you often get the response from people? Listen, it all sounds great, but I'm just not that type of person. It's not for me. I know it's not for me. I accept it's for some people, but not for me. Oh, totally. You know, and that's the most human response. And that's because it's because of like, people have this image of who it's for that, you know, you have to be a Russell Brand type who just talks loudly about juice cleanses, you know, and lights sage every time they sit into your car. You know, like people have this preconception about it. And also people think that, you know, I, well, I know it's probably works for you, but my mind is just too busy. I, I have too many thoughts. I, I, I just can't do it. Like we have 80,000 thoughts going through our head every day. They're not going anywhere. We don't have to get rid of them. Um, you know, we just have to not chase every single thought down the road. And 
Meditation is focusing your mind on one thing, for instance, your breath. And when your mind wanders off, which it will many times, you just bring it back. So I try and reassure people that it's a tennis match between attention and distraction. And in one two minute meditation, your mind might wander 50 times. And that's perfectly normal. It doesn't mean your brain is broken or that you have too many thoughts or that you're any different to anyone else. And Mm. when people realize, uh, come to terms of that and go, oh, okay, so it's okay if my mind wanders and I, I just keep kind of realizing that it's wandering. That's exactly it. And once people realize that, they settle into it a bit more because they don't feel like they're doing it wrong or they're bad at it. Other people might assume it, it, it has religious importance. I mean, for you, is it about mental well-being? Is there any spiritual significance to meditation? There is if you want there to be. And obviously, there are thousands years worth of spiritual traditions that have incorporated this. But, you know, it was the science that got me into this. There's tremendous science, particularly in the last 10 years even, that is finally proving that people who meditate, their brains work differently. And that's, is, this isn't monks. This isn't yogis. You know, this incredible study done in Harvard in 2012 with the with Massachusetts General Hospital, and they got beginner meditators like, you know, most of your listeners listening now, and they got them to do half less than half an hour meditation a day for eight weeks. So less than two months. And when they scanned their brains at the end of those eight weeks, they were shocked because they could see physical changes in all of the participants brains. Every single one of them, there was a control group who didn't do it and they didn't show this. But everyone who tried the meditation, even though they were beginners, their brains changed shape. So their amygdala, the part of our brain that's responsible for angry thoughts, fearful thoughts, anxious thoughts, the kinds of thoughts that put me in the back of an ambulance back in 2007, (laughs) that part of their brain had shrunk in size. There was less of it. And conversely, other parts of their brain responsible for memory, self-awareness, empathy, logical thinking, they had all actually grown in size. There was, there was more, literally more gray matter in their skulls. So for me, I thought, well, look, how can I continue to have as many anxious thoughts or the same kinds of worrying thoughts that keep me awake at night if I'm actively shrinking that part of my brain every time I do a few breaths? So, you know, it's, it can be spiritual if you want. But if you want to just focus on the science, do that. I mean, they teach it to, you know, law enforcement around the world and, and, the, mili- and the military, excuse me. But they don't call it meditation. They call it tactical breathing. Um, so it sounds far Ooh, more manly. Sounds more threatening, and, and, doesn't it? Yes, and less woo-woo, you know. <laughs> um, so you, whatever stamp you want to put on it, you know, that's my, my mission, if I have one with the book, is to just try and strip away all the stuff, the woo-woo, the, the, the dogma, all that kind of stuff that just comes with very simple techniques that we all deserve to use because a lot of us are stressed. A lot of us are more stressed now than we ever have been in our lives. So why should it just be there a resource for, you know, elite athletes or men with shaved heads who bang drums? Surely we all deserve a bit of this. And that's what I'm trying to do at night. Kieran Cudahy there from The Hard Shoulder. How can questions make the world a better place? That's my first question to you. The moment we stop asking questions is the moment we stop moving forward. It's that simple. Answers work when the world is stable, when what we're doing is right and nothing changes. But if the world changes, by definition, there's, we, we have to do something differently And in that situation, there are no answers sitting there, Bobby. It's like, okay, I've got to ask a different question. And that new question will open up a pathway 
to the better answer, given an uncertain terrain that I'm now operating in. Okay. So if I'm a leader in a particular business, what type of questions should I be asking my senior management, my employees? Give me just a sense of the type of questioning that you're alluding to here. It's very straightforward. So the folks that I've interviewed, these are 200 of the world's best leaders, including some in Ireland over time. It's the following. It's like, okay, how do you ask that better question? And they often start in a very descriptive fashion, which is what in the world is going on right now? There are three simple questions. You know them, Bobby. Everyone listening on this knows them. What is working? What's not working? And why? Right. That's the, that's the starting point. They're super simple to say, but to get, to get an honest, fearless response to that, that's the challenge. And once we get that foundation of what is, then we can start asking questions about, well, how might we do it differently? Or why not that? Or these questions that what if sort of questions that can take us to a different place. Either kind of question, that's the generic fundamental form, either kind of question is much more likely to deliver better answers by leaders who are not stuck within their office space. Now, that's funny to say in this middle of our COVID 2020 and 2021, but the spirit of it is so many leaders are relying on secondary data, information from somebody else's information, from somebody else's information, as opposed to primary data with the customer, with the people in the other department, with, you know, fill in the blank. It's getting up, getting out, getting into the world, getting surprised, getting uncomfortable, being a good listener, reflectively quiet. If I do that repetitively over and over, Week after week, even day after day, I build trust so that when I walk into your world, Bobby, at the radio station, it's like, and I'm asking you what's working, what's not and why, or more fundamentally, what's your biggest challenge right now? You trust me enough to start having a conversation. And it's questions that create meaningful, fearless conversations that lead to answers that, in fact, are the questions. What an interesting take, Hal Gregerson, from Down to Business with Bobby Kerr. And of course, you can tune into Bobby every Saturday morning from 10 till 12. OK, I'm going to leave you with now some classic Henry McKean. Have a great weekend. My funeral, my funeral would be all things that I like, my, my flowers that I like, like daffodils, all happy colours. You know, I just want the, my funeral to be a great memorial about me, my favourite music, you know things like that and is it difficult to talk about it should we all plan our funerals even though we hope to be here for a long time speaking for my own self i'd like to um, be able to plan my own funeral but god only knows and what sort of music traditional irish music i'd like nice music you know not not exactly what prince philip had you know he had very classical music i'd like nice easy listening music really so like the eagles or something yeah something like that yeah Mm -hmm. so a bit of country yeah, yes, maybe country, and then we'd throw in a bit of um, Tina Turner at the end. <laughs> so would that be um, what's love got to do with it, or would it be simply the best? Or um, It would be 
Oh, I can't think of it now, but I might think of it while you talk to Hugh. I hadn't really thought about it. I've, I've no intention of going anywhere in the, in the immediate future. I hope, anyway. And would it be small? Would it be big? Would it be religious? Uh, would it, it be atheist? Probably would be religious, but I, I don't particularly want religious music at it. So you wouldn't have a traditional choir? Uh, no, no, I wouldn't. Or a harpist or anything like that. But you can't beat a choir. I know at my wedding I had a choir. You just can't beat a choir, no? Our daughter had a, a male voice choir for her for her wedding, wedding, and it was quite nice. So a funeral? I, I don't think I'd warrant a choir, to be honest with you. <laughs> I know I was at a, a funeral before the pandemic, and they had the most beautiful flowers. Would you go big on flowers? Yeah, I would. I'd, I, I'd like flowers, to be honest with you. Yes, I'd like, I'd like a homily. But, and, uh, and how would you want to be remembered? Most people don't remember me. I'm a most unmemorable person. Ah, don't uh, say so that. It's, it's, um, the only people I want to remember me are, are, are my family, to be honest with you. Nobody else will, will remember me. So, yeah, I would like my family to remember me as probably somebody who was probably kind and humorous. Probably a little slow Westlife song is my funeral yeah. song, I think. Bit of Westlife. Bit of Westlife, yeah, I think so. Just sums it up lyric by lyric, you know what I mean? And some churches don't always like pop music. They don't like someone to bring in a ghetto yeah. blast. There's others that are fine about it. Would you have a choir? Would you have a homily? Would you want to go big or would it be small? This yeah. is after the pandemic, hopefully. I think my funeral would be big, if I'm honest. But, um, yeah, no, I think it would be a big funeral. Close family gathering, close friends. I am not wouldn't really be into <coughs> a big group because I think... You only really have a close group, don't you? Like you don't want too many people there and stuff. So if people close knit, this guy would probably be saying a speech for me. I think. I'd like my funeral to be a celebration of my life. Andy Shepherd, an English saxophone player, and piece, piece of music is fourteen and a half minutes long. That's the piece of music I'd have played at my cremation. You'd have a cremation, yeah, and would yeah. you have a live saxophonist, or would it no, be? Oh God, no, no, a tape? no, just a recording. Yeah. And you'd be cremated. Yes. And why cremation? Well, it's cheaper. I'll be gone. It doesn't really bother me too much. You know, cremation is cheaper, primarily. And funerals are expensive, aren't they? Yeah, they are. Anywhere between fifteen and 30000 Well, I don't know. I'm, I, I don't want anything lavish. Boring the whole audience with a 14 and a half minute jazz piece. You, you know. might like it. They won't. <laughs> no, but it'll be interesting. I, I will enjoy I'll get a kick out of it from the grave, you know. Would it be religious? No, God, no. And yeah. would you like to have a homily? Would you like somebody no, to say something no, nice about you? No, not really, no. I'd give them a nice homily. And what about your funeral? What would happen at it? I would say, yes, I would be similar in the sense that I'll, I'll be uh, cremated. Uh, a small ceremony with just family. Probably placed in a family grave, though. And maybe a name put on the uh, stone. What sort of music would you have? How would the service go? Uh, Cat Stevens. Something from the 60s or something, you know. And do you think about death much? Not really. I'd say um, you're dead, you're dead. That's, that's the end of you. In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk.